to the podcast, Culture of Consent with King. I've been on a little holiday, but now I'm back with lots of things. This is episode four, and I've got so much more. This is dedicated to everyone from a shithole country. (laughs) On this episode, I've got a rant about teaching consent to kids, and then I bring on an educator to talk about how do we even teach consent to kids and to ourselves. And then a closing taller-than-the-average man thought about Langston Hughes, because it's Black History Month, y'all. Cock Podcast. Greetings and welcome to episode four of Culture of Consent with King Cock Podcast. Apologies for the hiatus. It was definitely the holiday season coupled with my birthday and a lot of really fabulous political um, events were happening lately, not the least of which being Trump's completely bullshit State of the Union address, which I will just not get into right now because it's I just don't consent to the shittiness that is 45. We're also in a place where nationally we're reckoning with the after effects of the Me Too movement. And I'm left wondering, what exactly is it that folks are doing? How are we dealing with this? And how are we talking to our friends, loved ones, coworkers, and community members and neighbors about what sexual assault and violence looks like in our communities? And how do we address it? And how do we stop it? Not only do we have the Time's Up campaign, thanks to the Women of Hollywood, which is a legal defense fund to help victims of sexual assault and violence, the National Organization for Women also created a campaign called Hashtag Heal me too and that particular campaign focuses on survivors of sexual violence who suffer from ptsd usually we think of ptsd sufferers as people who survived war and avert that specific kind of trauma well according to rain which stands for rape abuse and incest national network people who experience sexual violence have a 94 percent chance of developing ptsd add that to statistic to the fact that one in three or maybe even two in three women in the United States will experience some form of sexual violence in her lifetime. And that involves a lot of people who need some healing. Because yes, sexual assault is war. For those of us who are in New York City, I must advocate for the Center for Anti-Violence Education, which is a place where I work, caeny.org. They offer self-defense classes, as well as de-escalation classes, and a host of other kinds of self-empowerment programming that is free to people who are victims of assault and violence. And there's a minor fee for everybody else. It's for, they have, there's classes for youth and adults. Check them out online, take some classes. You can also do some meditation with me. And more specifically, right now, I'm wondering, what are we doing to teach the babies? We've reached a cultural moment where every single young person you know sees thousands of media images a day and is privy to more content um, that is completely unrated and unfiltered than any time in human history. And so as adults, um, for the adults that are listening, it's our responsibility to give voice to these students, to these young people, to the children in our lives, 
uh, who might be wrestling with what all this looks like and means for them. Whether or not you have a child in your home or you work in education or maybe the only way that you see kids is through the subway or maybe you don't know any kids at all, at the end of the day, you can still be an advocate for social change and an advocate for educational awareness for young people. To me, predominantly what that means is giving them a space to talk asking them questions, asking them what it is that they are seeing and how they feel about it, and not making any kid take all this in by themselves with no opportunity for constructive reflection. We are the adults in their lives, and we are the ones that can help guide them on this path and this journey of self-discovery in the healthiest way possible. The reason I'm so hype about this is because a few weeks ago, I walked a 13-year-old student of mine home after class, and while we were walking through Fort Greene at night, she started, started kind of rapping poetic about how wonderful it was to watch the entire first season of She's Gotta Have It and really feel like she saw herself reflected in all these images of Fort Greene and the people and the diversity. I, for one, was shocked to hear these words come out of her mouth, and I tried really hard to hold it back. And I said, oh, really? Um, and what is it that you, that you enjoyed most about the show? What is it that you noticed? What did you see? And if you are not aware of my thoughts and feelings about the Spike Lee show, She's Gotta Have It, please listen to episode three of the podcast, where I basically say, in the words of men on film and in living color, hated it. She told me that she found it amazing and wonderful and she appreciated everything that the lead character Nola Darling had to do and say about the dynamics of sexual relationships. She really appreciated that the character was flawed in many different ways. We kind of got into this long and interesting conversation about what consent looked like for the lead character Nola Darling for the three different men that she dated and how that did and didn't reflect on my student's life. And she eventually said, you know, it's been a journey for me figuring out what to watch and what to really take in media wise, because my favorite show was Master of None. And after everything came out with Aziz Ansari, I just don't really know what to think anymore. And that really hit me because we as adults can sit here and have perspectives on what we think should have happened, who was in the right, who was in the wrong how exactly that played out and how we would have done it differently and what we think our responsibility is as adults in, in that type of setting. Granted, the female that Aziz Ansari was on a date with was, I think, 22, which is, in my opinion, barely an adult. And here was a 13-year-old telling me that she read about the entire thing, the article in Babe um, and all the, the clapback and the feedback on Instagram. And she was heartbroken because here was someone that she looked up to, someone whose career she admired, someone who she, in a lot of ways, aspired to be as far as his LGBTQ activism, his self-avowed feminism. She really could see herself um, reflected in this young immigrant experience that he so beautifully put together in the Master of None series. And after the um, article came out, she felt like she couldn't really trust him anymore. She couldn't really trust the people that she looked up to. And in a lot of ways, wasn't sure how she could trust men. That, my friends, is what we need to be talking to young people about. What are, what are they seeing? What are they interpreting? And how is that going to be influencing and affecting them moving forward? To help shed some light on this topic, I'm really interested in the ideas and perspectives of educators working throughout the school system, both in New York City and nationwide, on how we talk to young people about consent. And here's my first interview. So 
I'd like to welcome into the studio Aaron Rose, educator, writer, consultant. We met each other actually while both consulting for the New York City Department of Education on a variety of issues, specifically relating to amplifying the voices of LGBTQ students and students of color who are drastically marginalized within the DOE, um, both with curriculum and in representation through the teaching field. Anyway, welcome to the studio, Aaron. It's so good to be here. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you. And tell me, just just for the folks that are listening, tell us a little bit more about what it is that you do right now. Yeah. Um, so I am an educator. I'm a writer. I'm a consultant. And I like to describe myself as a cultural steward. And the work that I do these days is really around um, helping build organizational cultures, helping organizations design cultures where people of all identities can thrive and where we can really take ourselves off of the the autopilot that we've been on for hundreds and hundreds of, of years in terms of the way that systems of power play out in our interactions. So what I often do is go in and help folks take themselves off of autopilot and design new ways of relating to each other, design new ways of, of communicating so that they can show up fully authentically themselves and also just get down to business and do the work that they're all meant to do together. Um, so that's that's a bit of what I do. <laughs> that is some super vital work because one of the themes and issues that I explore a lot on a podcast about consent is about acknowledging who we are in spaces and how people's impressions of us or maybe even our impressions of ourselves impact and influence the way that we interact with one another, um, specifically around communication and communication strategies. Yeah. So... Um, to just welcome you to this particular section of the podcast as I welcome all my guests. This main interview portion is called SBF Straight Boy Feelings, where I bring on somebody to talk about how straight boy feelings have to do with or don't have anything to do with creating a culture of consent here mm -hmm. in the wonderful US of A. So just off the top, do you have any feelings about that statement? Yeah, I mean, I think that as I was reflecting before this this interview, I, th I think straight boy feelings have everything to do with consent everybody's feelings have have everything to do with consent and i think we have a deficit of of self-love in a way that is not actually about sort of our consumerist like go buy yourself a bath bomb and treat yourself to self-care kind of way but like straight men and people of all identities and all sexualities um in order to really consent to something we have to know what's real for ourselves we have to understand mm -hmm. um and honor what is true about our experience and i think that that is true um for people who are historically more likely to be survivors of consent violations and people who are historically more likely to be perpetrators of consent violations because you know just so a little bit of context um, i'm a queer trans man um and and you know, very deeply a part of the, the LGBTQ community. And for folks um, who have marginalized identities who might experience consent violations, um, you know, there, there's work to be done around how do we honor ourselves and how do we say, this is what I deserve and this is what I know I need in this situation and this is how I stand up for my boundaries, this is how I communicate them. And honestly, I think straight men in some ways need that work as much or more um, than women, LGBTQ people, other people um, who are historically survivors of violence because you can't give what you can't receive, right? And I think mm -hmm. that, um, you know, as as much as there is, as much as we can be really mad at these men who perpetrate these terrible things against people, um, like we're seeing particularly in the news in all of these different workplaces these days, um, there's part of me that has a huge amount of compassion 
towards them for um, how limited their sense of self must be. Right. And because mm-hmm. if you can't see another person as a human, mm-hmm. you must not really see yourself as a human mm-hmm. and dehumanization goes both ways. So mm-hmm. I think that I'm, I am interested in straight boys feelings and I'm interested <laughs> in them learning to care for themselves and have an approach of nourishing and, and, and honoring themselves that allows them to then extend that to other people. Mm-hmm. Um, that to me feels really, really crucial as we think about how to make consent something that's just really honored as part of our day-to-day interactions. The Aziz Ansari thing in particular is, it's just, it's such an interesting moment. And to me, it is like, it is a perfect encapsulation of what it looks like to have men who do not have a fully formed sense of self and their own yes. humanity. Yes, that's right? what because, I thought of. Yeah, in terms of, mm-hmm. in terms of the level of just disconnect, mm-hmm. right? And the level of just being on autopilot. Um, and I'm sure the level, like, the, the level of I'm a man, so I have to make this thing go because otherwise I'm not a man enough. Like that, right. you know, that script. Um, the, the first place I ever really taught about consent was with middle schoolers. Um, and so the conversations with kids are, are something that I'm familiar with. Um, consent was always a, a word that was new to the, the young people that I was working with. And so we would often use the word permission. Um, mm. And they would say consent means permission. Um, and, I, and I think that that, you know, that was a helpful framework for them because... I don't, frankly, I don't want an 11 or a 12 year old in a conversation of what does nonverbal consent look like. I want them in a conversation of if someone wants to do something with you and particularly you and your body, you get to say yes or no and they should ask and you mm-hmm. should ask also. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually I, I have all of these, I still have all of these great videos of, of these young people um, acting out different consent scenarios and, and just walking up to each other and being like, can I put my arm around you? And like one of them saying, no, I'm not up for it right now. And the other one saying, great, like I'll just stand next to you. And <laughs> yes. like, you know, some middle schooler like running across the screen being like, that's what consent is. And you know, it's like a 20 second video or something. Yeah. Um, 50, 16, 70 year old people need to do the exact same role play project. Oh, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I always, I always sort of feel like I'm just taking everything that I taught middle schoolers and mm-hmm. just you know making the developmental tweaks that adults need but it's basically all the same yeah I agree yeah I always think about who changed my life when I was young mm-hmm. and it was often a complicated experience right it was it were it was teachers who saw me and validated me and told me that I got to be me and the reason it was so powerful is because it was in direct contrast to the rest of my experience in the world mm-hmm. everywhere else outside of that classroom with you know that history teacher that English teacher Um, For that hour every day, people didn't see me as who I was. My boundaries were being violated constantly. Mm -hmm. I was in a lot of unsafe situations, uh, and life was pretty hard. But in those moments, it gave me a taste of this is what life could and should be, and I'm not crazy. One of the things that I loved about teaching sixth graders consent versus teaching ninth or tenth graders is that they had they generally had fewer experiences that they were already trying to justify. And that's what's really hard about working with young people is that sometimes they're already like, wait, if permission is a thing and I don't have to do anything that I don't want to do, like, then how do I make sense of this experience that I've already had where someone has pushed my boundaries? Right. That's so incredibly valuable. I mean, what Mm. you're talking about right now is sort of reframing trauma. Right. Oh, totally. Lived, lived trauma, even you know, experiential trauma um, and that 
It's so interesting because when you think about how adults react to stories like the Aziz Ansari one and you hear people lashing out and then this idea of victim blaming or um, not victim blaming or whose fault was what and who should have done this and everyone everyone was an expert you know oh, yeah when it's a when it's a date that went wrong everyone's everyone's an expert of what shoulda coulda would have been and who you know did did something that they shouldn't have done etc and um it's interesting to hear you speak because it's reminding me of how so much of what happens to us in our formative years impacts and influences the way that we are as adults. Obviously, we yeah. all know this already, but um, th th I definitely see that played out with a lot of these more public stories about consent is that folks can sometimes, I guess, sort of bury moments in their own lives where their permission was not given. And then they are then reacting to how others are dealing with similar issues later in life. And they're coming from this place of hurt or of Absolutely. silencing. And yeah. that's how they're reacting as opposed to supporting or acknowledging. What is our role and responsibility to the young people in our lives and also to ourselves as we try to analyze our own positionality within creating a culture totally. of consent? Like when we all are getting mixed messages that come from our own defensiveness around this. Yeah, and one of the phrases I use the most in my work is if it's hysterical, it's historical. Um, like if we are having an explosive reaction to something, it's generally not just about the thing that just happened. Right. Right. And yep. we can mm -hmm. validate that. Um, and, and then also I think another phrase that I, I don't say it in every corporate boardroom, but I truly believe that literally anything we ever do is either an act of love or a cry for love. Right. And wow. we, we mm -hmm. are in deep need of healing every single one of us. And mm -hmm. the way that we reckon with trauma, just like I would with an 11 year old who's like, you know, clearly, you know, having a different experience than their classmates of this conversation around permission, because, you know, maybe they've had an experience that that is coming up for them. The way that we heal it is by validating it. Right. The mm. way that we we heal it is by saying, yeah, that was not OK. The deep healing comes from saying these feelings that you have are real and and to not further traumatize ourselves by pushing it away. And that just allows us to be safe people for ourselves, too, because we're not trying to cut off parts of ourselves that have had experiences that we wish we hadn't had but mm -hmm. we had them so we gotta we gotta welcome them back into the fold and just let them be and that's mm -hmm. how we absorb it and we we move on yeah acknowledge it because even what yeah. you're saying right now reminds me of me the meditative practice right oh yeah so it's not about pushing out all the, the thoughts and ideas this is one of the classes that i teach where i just say you know i, I do a lot of awareness meditation where i'm just like whatever you're feeling or experiencing or thinking about that's real that's yeah. true and that's okay that to-do list that's going on in your head right now it's it's there it's gonna be there yeah, when we're just done with be the loving too. loving witness yeah. to it all just throw love at it and and that's fine you're you're a very hopeful person which is really great um i've you're like bringing yeah out a lot your of listeners can't see my smile oh <laughs> it's there <laughs> yeah. it's really great um, I, yeah, I, I think of myself as a very hopeful, positive person, but then sometimes my cynicism just like takes over in crazy ways. But uh, on that same vein, what are you really looking forward to as a result of mm. this Me Too movement? That's a great question. I the, the first thing that came to mind is that, I mean, I think these processes are certainly cyclical. We can see that when we look at race in our country and the way that we have mm. this just really, really violent backlash happening right now that's more and more empowered than ever. Um, as 
as we have more upfront conversations about racial justice and police brutality in this country, and so the same thing for for sexual assault and and, and violence of any kind, right? I think that it's going to be a cyclical process of of release and backlash and transformation, and it's going to play out over many many years. What I'm most excited about, honestly, is just all of these survivors. Everyone, I mean, the stats now are that one in three people who move through the world as women will experience sexual assault and yeah. one in six men. And I think, you know, it's, it's most of us. I think mm-hmm. those numbers are, are, are actually pretty small. And so I'm excited about the people who are going to be able to say to their friend who they've never talked to, um, about what happened to them and, and say, Oh yeah, that, you know, that actually did happen to me and mm-hmm. to, and to have their friend be able to have a context for receiving that right. and to receive that validation and to be able to honor what we've experienced and therefore to heal from it. And in some mm-hmm. ways I feel like what's happening right now is like the equivalent of like, we're, we're, we're like cleaning out like a hoarder house and we're just throwing all of this, you know, the, all this accumulated stuff is getting exposed to the light and we're like, Oh my God, there's another room. Oh my God, there's another floor. Mm-hmm. Like there's just so much to clear out. Mm-hmm. Um, but as we allow ourselves to do that, then we just, we get to be in a daily rhythm where, you know, in six months, you know, goddesses forbid, but when something else happens, will hopefully have the cultural capacity to receive it and heal it more readily rather than smushing it down um, until it, you know, until it, it festers. Um, so I'm, I'm hopeful for what happens after this moment of relief or release. And I, and I, and I feel a great sense of like shared relief mm. from all of these people who are just like, yeah, I wasn't lying. Mm. It's real. Right. That, that certainly gives me hope. It gives me hope because I really believe that, you know, when we heal ourselves on an individual level, that's how we heal ourselves on a collective level. Mm-hmm. Um, and this this can only lead to more healing. So true. Do, do Are you already seeing the effects of this in your personal life as well? Mm. We talk quite a bit about your work, but yeah. are you seeing how some of these conversations are impacting how you interact with your friends and loved ones? Yeah, I mean, I think that I've been lucky to have have a community that and, and good friends who who've had this understanding of trauma for a while um, and have been able to validate each other through our experiences. But certainly I feel like it's less of, it it feels less scary to talk about experiences of of consent violations. And honestly, less, the thing that that feels easier now is to talk about it in a more nuanced way, Mm -hmm. right? I think that, you know, several years ago when I had, you know, an experience of, of surviving assault, it felt like people were either like, yes, like we're getting the pitchforks or people were like, really? I'm not really sure if that happened. Hmm. Um, and you know, either really silencing or really burn it down. And, and now I feel like I'm having conversations with people that are like a little bit more nuanced from a restorative justice perspective of, you know, what's the space between remove this person from the, from our community or the face of the earth. <laughs> wow. Um, yeah. And that probably didn't happen to you. You know, so how do we how do we absorb trauma back into communities? How do we acknowledge um, acknowledge people who have really messed up and who need a certain kind of deep healing? Um, mm-hmm. And how do we do that while also keeping ourselves safe and knowing that our primary allegiance must be to ourselves and our own well-being first and foremost? Now, sometimes I just Google a thing 
and you can find some really great articles on said thing uh, whether that's on psychology today or buzzfeed you know mm. pick pick your path um but talking specifically about restorative healing and um advocating for personal uh, boundaries and acknowledging consensual relationships uh, could you just give me like just one two or three maybe yeah. sort of accessible resources that folks can check out if they're interested in sort of pursuing this journey of education and healing definitely um on the the vein of of young people i think scarletine is always a really really um great sort of community sourced resource um all scarletine it's it's like a peer-led um sex ed resource website for young people all these things i'm mentioning i'll send you you know the links to so you can put them in the show notes um and it's yeah it's been a resource i've used for a long time and it's pretty accessible to young people um and there's a lot of i think that they have like open forums and things like that and it's generally just a very supportive community so i think that's helpful restorative justice i think it's just restorativejustice.org um is one of the main main sites that that does restorative justice work so work that steps out outside of our sort of traditional punitive criminal justice system as a way of dealing with with conflict and with violation and and looks at ways to do deeper community healing and the last thing i'll say is that um, a lot of my work happens very deeply in sort of a one-on-one way with clients um, but i'm actually going to be writing more of an advice column on workplace culture, on consent, on um, these, you know, these different issues. How do we build a culture where people can show up as their full selves? How do Mm -hmm. we negotiate? How do we navigate our boundaries? Mm -hmm. Um, And just really starting to look at case studies from pop culture and saying, if this person was in your workplace, what would we do? Um, Or, Mm -hmm. and, you know, current events, not just pop culture. Um, Mm So I, I think that there are good resources, but I'm really seeking to create a whole bunch more mm-hmm. um, that that speak to the lived reality of the messy, messy situations that people find themselves in every single day. So, yeah. We've talked so much about healing. Can yeah. you sort of, you know, give a, give me a little bit about like your favorite club bangers? Like where mm. where is Aaron's sort of like physical late night healing coming from right now oh okay this is like so important in the activist community and the healing community it's so important it's not just like mac and cheese and like really fuzzy sweatpants it's also club bangers and like i know as much as anybody it's definitely all kinds of music i'm going to my spotify here um to (laughs) to to find the song that i have been blasting on repeat for for days now which is you got it by Roy Orbison, which is like this <laughs> 80s hit. Yeah, I know it. Um, and it's the kind of song that I previously would have just thought was like this cheesy 80s hit or whatever, but it's so affirming. The okay. whole song is just about like anything you want, you got it. And it's and it just, it fills me, it is sung with such joy and it just fills me with this sense of like anything is possible. When I hear it, I think about how, you know, I have dreams of living in a world where I'm fully taken care of. And and I also hear it as like, what if I were to be saying that, able to say that to every person I encounter, like anything Mm. you want, like you're going to be cared for.
and then also because I'm just like a very emotional gay person, I've been listening <laughs> to the Call Me By Your Name soundtrack, which has these beautiful oh, yeah. Sufjan um, Stevens songs okay. that are just, they're just a great kind of song for walking down the street in the middle of the winter and mm. thinking about love and, uh, and, and, you know, the many chapters of our lives. Oh, I'll check them out. Yeah. Oh, thanks for that. Is it a video? Is there anything um, else you want to tell the people? I think that the the message that I'm trying to leave everybody with in the work that I do is that um, by healing ourselves, we heal the world. Right? And so it's not an either or thing. It's not do we run off on our social justice crusade and leave ourselves behind. It's not, you know, by taking care of ourselves, we're not participating in the revolution. It really is. How do we love ourselves fully? How do we honor all of our feelings? How do we let that determine the boundaries that we compassionately compassionately communicate with the world? And then how do we honor that as it shows up in everybody else? And that really is the revolution um, that I'm here for. Yay, I love that. I wanna fill up everybody's cup with a bunch of positivity. I really yeah. love it. Nice, warm, goopy positivity. Thank totally. you so much, Aaron Rose, for coming on Culture of Consent with King Cock. It's I been a pleasure. I do say coming on cock sometimes. But, it's you know. it's all good. You got to make use of, <laughs> of, of the many entendres. It just sort of at happened. At disposable. Yeah, the whole thing just yeah. happened. I mean, the, the the revolution will be will be full of puns and. I hope so. Check out the show notes for resources on talking to young people about consent. I close every podcast with Tam thoughts. That's taller than the average man thoughts inspired by Oprah's runaway bestseller, Things I Know For Sure, because you know what I know for sure. I'm a lot taller than the average man. And today I really wanted to reflect on a statement Aaron made in regards to having a cultural capacity for healing rather than letting something fester. And that really made me think of the Langston Hughes poem, Harlem, which goes like this. What happens to a dream deferred? Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun, or fester like a sore and then run? Does it stink like rotten meat, or crust and sugar over like a syrupy sweet? Maybe it just sags like a heavy load, or does it explode? That poem is one of my all-time favorite poems because of what it tells us about our hopes and our fears and our dreams if we don't listen to them. I ask everyone who's tuned in today to wonder, what are your dreams? that you're deferring for cultural change? What are the attitudes that need to be shifted, both within yourself and within your community that could contribute to positive social change for all of us? And also, if you're not familiar with his work, check out Langston Hughes. His writings are dope. And while you're at it, also check out some Nikki Giovanni, Sonia Sanchez, Amiri Baraka, and everyone of the Black Arts Movement. And you know why? Because it's Black History Month, y'all. Happy celebrating. Thanks for tuning into Culture of Consent with King. Cock. Talk podcast is recorded, produced, and engineered by Leah King in Brooklyn, New York. Please like, subscribe, share, tell a neighbor, tell a friend, write a review on iTunes if you can. Let me know what you think, especially in regards to future topics. I've got a lot more coming up for you this month. Stay tuned.